0: Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Roger, a student at King's College London. And, and this, this is That Medic, Medic podcast. podcast. In this podcast, we spoke to Dr. Michael Chang, a pediatric ophthalmologist and the director of the National Eye Institute. We discussed artificial intelligence's place in medicine, the increasingly greater role of bioinformatics in the National Institutes of Health and the future of treatment for vision disorders. Today's show is perfect for anyone excited about digital health or just intrigued about research and the future of medicine. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Hi Dr. Chang, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. So we normally start the podcast by asking the question, why did you decide to study medicine?
1: Well, Seymour, first of all, thanks for having me on here. Um, You know, I guess I'd answer that by saying that I started out life as an engineer. You know, I grew up in a family where almost everybody was an engineer um, on both sides of the family, uh, except for my mom, who was a nurse. And, um, you know, my father was an automotive engineer who really, you know, built things and, you know, tried to fix things around the house all the time. And so I grew up wanting to be an engineer. I just assumed that people did that when they grew up. And um, when I went to college, that's what I did. Um, But I happened to spend a couple summers working in jobs uh, that involved basically building devices that were used for healthcare. And it happened to be cardiac imaging devices. And I actually thought it was fascinating that you could build a device and then use it to take care of people and discover things about people. And that's actually what made me want to be a physician. Um, I wanted to be a doctor who basically um, used technology... Uh, to build devices that would ultimately, you know, help
0: people. Certainly. And you mentioned that you started off as an engineer. I know that you completed college at Stanford, where you earned degrees in both biology and electrical engineering. Then when you were a medical student at Harvard, you were in the Harvard-MIT division of health sciences and technology. Then you later earned your master's degree at Columbia at their department of biomedical informatics. So in short, you have some tremendous training in digital health. So I'm really curious, can you share what first drew you to digital health and what do you continue to find appealing about this interdisciplinarity?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, as, we, as we talked about, I went into um, uh, this field because I wanted to use technology uh, to make a difference in healthcare. But I had originally assumed that it would be by um, building machines. So you know, when you go to medical school, what you do is you, you first graduate from medical school, then you train as a resident to specialize in something. And in my case, that was ophthalmology. And so that was for five years. It was at Johns Hopkins. And um, during that time, it was, a, it was the late 1990s to early 2000s. Uh, and during that era, virtually all medical care was done using paper charts. And that was really slow. It was, it was really inefficient. And it was during that time that I started to think that maybe the world doesn't need more people who build more machines um, and devices um, maybe we need more people who can use computing technologies uh, to better manage um, all that data uh, and so you know again this was an era when you know, you know things like the internet and the world wide web were becoming um, you know really were really moving into the mainstream and so that's what led me to learn about the field of informatics uh, and what made me want to really focus my career in that area and um, you know C-Mart, it was it was really um, uh, astute, I think, of you to mention the term um, interdisciplinary work, um, you know, because I, I've really had the privilege of training and working across disciplines like, you know, science and computing and medicine. But I think more uh, broadly, if you will, um, the concept of people who come from different backgrounds um, working together is is really important, uh, you know. As a college student, you know, I'm sure that you're seeing the benefits of learning you know, from other students who come from different backgrounds as an, as an academic. Uh, it's always really fascinated me um, how many smart and really talented people um, are out there whose academic backgrounds are different from mine. And it's when you get those people together in the same room and look at the same problem from those different perspectives. You know, I, I think it's um, that's when sometimes we make real advances. And so I hope that's something that uh, people who are listening to this are going to keep in mind as all of you advance your educations and your careers, um, how important it can be to work with people across different disciplines.
0: Of course, we can learn so much. There's just different ways of doing things that if we stay sequestered in our own lane, that you never begin to appreciate. I also wanted to sort of get... A more broad based view of digital health and your insight into that, because you're also a previous chair of the American Academy of Ophthalmology's Medical Information Technology Committee and their Artificial Intelligence Committee. And certainly, much of your research has also been centered on biomedical informatics. So, biomedical informatics is moving at a quite the rapid pace, and I'd love to get some understanding of what the trajectory of digital health has been from when you started in medical school to now. And if past is prologue, what do you think the future might hold?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. It's also a really complex question. <laughs> Simran, let me try to answer that question about um, trajectory with a, a little analogy. Uh, so if I um, were to go back to 1988, uh, that's when I was a freshman in college. And so I was basically the same age as <laughs> um, you know, what you are right now. And um, back then... I was, um, one of about two or three kids in my dormitory hall who had their own computer. Okay. And back then there were only a few freshmen in college who even knew about email. Okay. Now you remember this was Stanford University. It was the middle of the Silicon Valley and people just really weren't doing that, um, back then. And at the time, um, for word processing, you know, we were using things like, you know, the earliest version of Microsoft Word or, you know, systems like WordPerfect 1.0. And, um, those programs were, largely typewriters on a computer screen. In other words, what happened is that the designers kind of replicated something that people were really familiar with back then. It was typewriters. And so those early word processors, they didn't really do a whole lot. It was basically if you made a mistake, you could delete it and people thought that was a really, really big deal. You didn't need to use whiteout, But... If you fast forward now to 2021, word processors are clearly much, much more than typewriters on a computer screen. You know, you, you track changes, you check spelling and grammar, you know, insert tables and figures, you collaborate with people doing the same document at the same time. And, you know, most people would not have imagined that um, back in 1988. But but it's, it's it's when you get that critical mass of people who's really comfortable with the technology That people start to go outside the box and you come up with all these new, you know, transformative ideas. Right. And, um, anyway, I think the analogy is that when I started practicing medicine in 2001, you know, to get to your question about sort of the past and the future of um, healthcare, um, back in 2001, uh, there were really not many doctors at all using electronic health records. It was all paper notes. And it was sort of the equivalent of, you know, people handwriting their papers instead of, you know, using, you know, word processors. And now we've got electronic uh, medical records, but in a lot of ways, uh, the earliest electronic medical records sometimes feel like WordPerfect 1.0, you know, somewhat the medical equivalent of typewriters on computer screens. You know, because that's what all of our um, uh, minds are locked into. We're advancing really quickly and I'm seeing you know, a lot of parallels. <laughs> and so it feels like we're going back to the future. I, I think that there are so many ways that we're going to reinvent the field of medicine uh, with all these. I think what are going to turn out to be game changing innovations that are going to be the equivalent of what things like track changes you know, and cloud computing have done for word processing. But where I'm headed with this is that I think it's actually the people of your generation uh, who are young and creative and who are doing things like podcasts, you know, who are going to come up with those innovations uh, for what's going to transform healthcare. And, and so I think that's actually what makes this an extremely exciting time uh, and a really transformative time for healthcare.
0: Indeed, I'm already excited by what you're uh, predicting for our future. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about your research because it is relevant. Most recently, you were at the Oregon Health and Science University, OHSU, where you led research centered around health information technologies for ophthalmic care. So what exactly is HIT, health information technology? And what were the main areas for your research?
1: Well, Seymour, basically what I've tried to do in my career is develop ways to use information technology, um, you know, to take better care of patients. Now, th- that's a really broad goal. And you know, when you start your career as an assistant professor, if you become a, a so-called academic, you need to really find a specific set of projects to work on, <laughs> you know, rather than say you're going to revolutionize information technology and in medicine. Uh, and so as a pediatric ophthalmologist, what I wanted to do is I wanted to do some research that involved kids. Uh, So I had learned about an eye disease called retinopathy of prematurity, or ROP. It's a disease that causes babies to go blind. Uh, You know, for example, it's what caused Stevie Wonder, you know, the singer, to lose vision. Um, uh, So at the time, you know, to take care of babies with ROP, ophthalmologists needed to travel to neonatal intensive care units to examine the babies. And that's really logistically hard to do. It's complicated. Uh, so what we did is that we designed a set of studies that looked at whether telemedicine uh, could be an alternative way to take care of those babies. In other words, we trained nurses to use uh, digital cameras to take care of, uh, to take pictures of babies' retinas, and we built systems to collect those images and have people review those images remotely. And um, you know, we spent seven years uh, doing those studies, and you know, th- that's that's how I started my career. Uh, it's obviously evolved um, since then, but it, but it's really been enormous fun to have a job where you know I, I can really do what I love doing.
0: Certainly, and I want to dive a bit into what I know is one of your research interests—that you helped develop an assistive artificial intelligence system that was designated as a breakthrough by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. So, is there any potential for this technology to translate for diseases? outside of retinopathy, of prematurity, and then also outside ophthalmology more generally?
1: Yeah, artificial intelligence is one of those technologies that has potential to, you know, change the way that we live. It's, you know, we, um you know, you're right that we took what was originally a telemedicine, um you know, research program back in the early 2000s and evolved it uh, to do things like artificial intelligence. And um, we talked about collaborative work early and, you know, we could never do those things without an amazing collaborative team. Uh, in fact, you know, just, you know, there are several people in your part of the um, country in Boston, but uh, Jayshree Kalpathy kramer is an awesome collaborator. And uh, she's at Massachusetts General Hospital and there's Dennis Adogmas, Estrada Zionadas, and they, they run a program at Northeastern um, University. And of course um, a guy, Pete Campbell in Oregon, um, you know, who I worked a ton with. Um, but you know, we've all heard the promise of AI. And first it was things like chess programs, uh, that, you know, can beat the chess players that, that can beat the best chess players in the world. Uh, then it became AI systems that can beat the best jeopardy players in the world. And it's moved on to other, you know, other things. And, um, uh, in the medical world, um, we and you know a lot of others have shown that um, artificial intelligence systems you know based on similar sort of underlying principles, you know things like deep learning um, these days can can diagnose certain diseases um, as well as uh, or better than um, most expert doctors. Uh, So clearly, there's a lot of validation that needs to be done before getting these systems out to the real world. But it's it's moving in that direction. And I I hope that's something that's going to really improve the practice of medicine and ophthalmology.
0: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that point you made about a lot of validation needs to be done before it moves into the real world. Because it's very common for people to say that, oh, artificial intelligence will render physicians obsolete. So in your expert opinion, what role do you see AI playing in that notion of medicine's future? It's
1: a great question. That's definitely a concern that I've heard from physicians. And you know, I, I'm really not as worried about that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's... You know, for that matter, we could say that you know, 150 years ago, you know, people said the same thing about stethoscopes—you mm-hmm. know—that they would uh, create a barrier between patients and doctors, or that they would take away sort of the art of you know, doctoring. Um, and you're pushing your ear up to a patient's chest. You know, but but I, I think that there is so much that really goes into doctoring. You know, one of the first things that you do is that you make a diagnosis, and uh, making a diagnosis is a a fairly analytical process. Um, you know, it involves asking the patients questions. And you you take a history. Uh, you then examine the patient. You do diagnostic tests, and some of those diagnostic tests may be blood tests. Uh, some of them may be maybe imaging tests like X-rays or um, MRIs or you know any of the ophthalmic imaging things that we do, and then you integrate all of it and come up with you know what is the most likely diagnosis. And, you know, I think that we as a community are starting to show that diagnosis is something that AI has potential to do. But, you know, those diagnoses aren't usually in very, very narrow areas. And now putting aside the fact that AI tends to diagnose narrow areas, you know, whereas physicians uh, look at the whole breadth of a patient and see what's going on, because there's a really big difference in making a narrow diagnosis versus examining a whole patient and looking at all the different things that could be right or wrong, there's a whole nother piece of doctoring, which, which is what I would call the management of patients or management of patient care. So for example, if you diagnose somebody with terminal cancer, you know, that patient could be managed through a lot of different options. And, you know, one of those options might be you could offer chemotherapy and radiation therapy and maybe That would give us slightly longer life expectancy on the average. Uh, But the downside is that the patient would feel terrible, you know, so many side effects. Um, And um, maybe another option for management of that patient is that they could go in hospice care and, um, you know, not do those um, aggressive therapies. And, you know, the benefit of that is that that would give the patients the opportunity to say goodbye to their friends and families, you know, more peacefully. And I, I think that those are cases where there's often no right answer. And, you know, different logical and smart patients are going to come up with different answers, you know, based on their own set of preferences and values. And, you know, I think the job of physicians it is really to help guide patients through making those management decisions together, and those things are really human decisions. They're based on things like you know getting to know your patients and understanding how they value you know different parts of their lives. And so I, I think to get to really you know finish answering your question, um, you know, Seymour, I, I think um, personally I feel that there's always going to be a major role for physicians even in the AI era. Uh, Now, it's possible that that role is gonna evolve over time. And um, maybe that role is gonna involve, physicians need to understand more about how computing technologies can help them make a better diagnosis and then focus more of their efforts on what we're calling here, patient, you know, quote, management. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, physicians have been evolving our roles for generations, you know, as, as technologies advance. And I'm not sure I see this as being fundamentally different.
0: Fair enough. Thank you for that thoughtful answer. And of course, in addition to being an excellent clinician and researcher, you're also a tremendous physician educator. Um, You have served as the director of multiple NIH-funded million-dollar training programs at OHSU. At Columbia, you were also the director of medical student education in ophthalmology. So I want to ask you, why is medical education so important to you? And why should other physicians get involved with education?
1: Yeah, I, I I think this is a really important question. In a lot of ways, I think that there's a natural life cycle. You know, you start out as a kid, uh, you grow up, you go to school, you mature into an adult, and then you, you learn more and more. And, um, you know, when we quote grow up, you know, which I'm not sure we ever really grow up because, you know, life is a process. Um, but... I think it's natural that, you know, a lot of people, what we do is we have kids, right? And then you teach your kids um, what you've learned. And so, in other words, you have kids, you teach what you've learned to that next generation. And, and th- that's basically how I view medical education. It, it's part of that academic life cycle. So, it's the same thing. You, you go through school, you train, you become a so-called expert in something, and then you train other people to become future experts. Um, now, now, in terms of what I think medical education is really like, uh, when you become a, um, well, you know, you know, most students, you know, think of the first day of school as being, you know, September 1st or after Labor Day. When you're an upper-class medical student or you're a resident um, in the U.S., July 1st, is basically that universal, you know, so-called first day of school. And um and I, I think every July first is extremely exciting in academic medical centers because you're starting over, okay, with a fresh group of trainees uh, who are young and smart and really eager to learn and, and who really push us as educators by asking good questions. Yeah. You know, so it helps us make sure that our skills are sharp, not to date. And so the, the flip side of that is that June 30th is a really, really interesting day, uh, because you get to see the people that you've, um, you know, helped to train go out in the real world and start doing those things in their careers. And so I, I think that it's a really, really, um, uh, uh amazing process always around.
0: That's incredible. This notion of life cycle. Amazing. Um, now, moving more to the present, you are the director of the National Eye Institute. So for our students at home, including a significant audience, which is in the United Kingdom, what exactly is the NEI? And what are your responsibilities as director? <laughs>
1: um, I've been director of the NEI for only uh, you know, less than two months now. <laughs> so I'm really, uh, you know, working through this. But let me back up and say that um, in the US, the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH, um, is the primary federal government agency in this country uh, that supports medical research. And so basically, the goal of the NIH is to ultimately improve the health of all Americans, um, you know, initially through research percolating to human health. Uh, so the NIH is made up of 27 different parts. And those parts are called institutes or centers. Uh, so just as an example, um, one of those 27 institutes that we're hearing about all the time uh, these days is the NIAID, which is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And that's headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci. So um to answer your question, uh, the National Eye Institute is one of those twenty-seven individual institutes of the NIH, and it obviously deals with eye disease. Uh, and so, in terms of what it means to direct um, uh, the NEI, I think that the director of any organization really has, you know, fundamentally two different tasks. You know, one of those tasks is that you want to make sure that the um, uh, overall function of the organization runs smoothly so for NEI what we really one of the things that we try to do is that we try to identify and fund um you know the best vision research in the US and also around the world and you know we also have some of our own uh, so called intramural investigators and physicians okay, who um you know work on their own projects here at the NEI uh, so basically that first task is making sure all of those processes um, run well and they run smoothly. The second task is a much bigger picture one. It's really more of a strategic planning. Uh, you know, we talked about um, improving the health of all Americans and in this case it means Improving the visual health of all Americans. Well, how do you do that? Um, You know, there are a million different things that are going to play into that from identifying research, how that's going to be translated into clinical studies, how you run those clinical trials, how you roll them out to populations. And so that strategic planning part is, you know, where do we want to be five years from now? Okay, where can we realistically be five years from now and how do we, quote, you know, skate to where the puck is heading, as it were? And I think that's a fascinating problem. So, so it's really all those things put together.
0: Wonderful. And I know that in many ways, the National Institutes of Health has often been focused on basic science research. So what does it mean to you to bring your bioinformatics background to the NIH and help contribute to a more digital future as the nation's top ophthalmologist?
1: Great question. Smart. As we had um, talked about earlier, computing technologies have clearly, you know, transformed the practice of medicine. They've transformed the way that we do science and, you know, they've really transformed the way that we live. You know, we gave this analogy of, you know, college freshmen back in 1988 versus in 2021. It's totally different. You know, biological research, um, I mean... Put aside, you know, computing and you know, artificial intelligence. You know, biological research is really different now in a lot of fundamental ways um, uh, compared to what it was like in 1989 when I was studying, you know, introductory biology in college. And that's because of the impact of uh, computing technologies and you know, things like um, uh, sequence alignment algorithms and large-scale uh, genomic databases. Uh, and I-, I think that there are clearly so many other technologies that are completely different uh, now compared to a generation ago. It's genetics, cell biology, um, immunology is clearly um, all over the news these days because of things like vaccines, uh, medical imaging, and so on. And um, obviously, one of the things that makes it um, exciting to be alive right now and studying um, uh, science and medicine is that we've never had this level of uh, science and technology available. And it's creating, you know, really unprecedented opportunity that are going to lead to advances, in our case, that are one day going to help people, prevent people from going blind and obviously live longer. Uh, So a lot of really enormous potential out there to, to take advantage of these technologies.
0: Indeed. And there's a quote that I think is incredibly relevant to our conversation at large. Um, It goes something like this. Science without policy is a few papers and nothing more. Policy without science is frankly dangerous. So how do you ensure that the research the NEI funds and conducts translates into tangible changes instead of sitting in a dusty old journal somewhere?
1: Simo, that is a really insightful Question and it's it's funny. I was probably thirty-five or forty years old uh, when I first understood what you just said. Um, so you're way ahead of you know where where I was. And in short, I, I completely agree with that. Um, let me just give a, a quick anecdote, if I may. Um, in my career, you know, I've really had the privilege um, of seeing firsthand um, how doctors can identify gaps in clinical practice so for example in retinopathy of prematurity we felt that uh, there needed to be better ways to take care of babies with rop and diagnose them more efficiently and it's those gaps in knowledge that motivate research studies and so those studies can be in things like telemedicine artificial intelligence you know gene therapy whatever the relevant topic is and if those research studies work you then do clinical research and you know, do clinical trial, move them toward you know testing them in people. And if they work, then doctors start adopting those technologies. And uh, once those clinical techniques are shown to be successful, policymakers start to make rules about those practices. And so those policies can involve guidelines for best care practices. In other words how should the uh, doctor out there practice that relevant field or they can involve things like reimbursement okay should insurance companies pay for that uh, new procedure so yeah a- absolutely science uh, clinical care and policy making are all really closely related and I-, I think it's really really important that they always stay together for those reasons so great great points
0: awesome now Talking more broadly, what NEI research initiatives are you most excited about? And where do you see treatment for vision disorders going in the next 15 to 20 years?
1: Yeah, important question. We talked about strategic planning um, at the National Eye Institute. And one of the really exciting things we're working on now is a strategic strategic plan that's really going to be our roadmap for the next five years. Uh, And the way that we develop these plans is that you start by getting suggestions. From all of our so-called stakeholders, and in our case, those are things like uh, groups of doctors, researchers, scientists, patient organizations, foundations, and you know just groups like that who are interested in this area. Obviously, patients themselves. Uh, And so, after that, we create panels of experts who look at where are we now in 2021? How do we get here? Uh, What are the most promising scientific and technological advances? where our biggest opportunities for breakthroughs and then we put all that together and decide how to combine it into a coherent plan and we're basically in the middle of that right now but i would um say that so uh, i'm a practicing ophthalmologist okay i started my first faculty job in 2001 and uh, it's almost 20 years ago and i i think it's for me incredibly inspiring that I've taken care of a lot of, let's use um, premature babies as an example, because we talked about retinopathy of prematurity. You know, I took care of some babies who were born in 2001 who went blind. Uh You know, they had bad disease and they lost vision because there wasn't available treatments back then. Now it's 2021. And in the 20 years that have passed, uh there's been advances in areas like medical imaging, pharmacological therapy, gene therapy, where... Babies who are born in 2001 with those exact same diseases are not going to go blind. And it's because of those advances. And I I think that is remarkable. And it's actually amazing to step back and say, this has happened in my career. And that's what really gives me a lot of inspiration that uh, we at the NEI are going to be able to stimulate research that's going to do the exact same thing for patients in the future.
0: That's incredibly inspiring, and I think that nearly wraps up the episode. But before we go, could we ask for your three pieces of advice for students interested in conducting medical research at the highest levels?
1: Yeah, I think that, Seymour, when when we started, you you asked how I ended up becoming an engineer who went into medicine, and then ophthalmology, then informatics, and if I reflect on that, my path hasn't exactly been linear. But it's, but it's been enormous fun. And so, honestly, if when I was your age, if someone would have asked me if I'd predict that I'd ever have a job that I love doing so much, I I would not have guessed that it would have been possible. But it's absolutely possible because I've, I've gone through it. So I, I think that my first, um, piece of advice to students would be to spend time when you're young to figure out what you love doing because it can really make the rest of your life so much more enriching. My second piece of advice is, let's say when I was, um, you know, quote your age, I used to think that after you went to school, you came out and you were an expert in something. Yeah, I've got a daughter who's going to college now and you know, she's afraid that when she graduates in three years, she's not going to know everything you know, about her field, which is computer science. And, um, you know, I've, I've learned that that is not at all true, that we're always learning. And the, the piece of advice is that you need to have great mentors throughout your um, education, throughout your careers. I think that's true at every single level. And it's definitely true when you're younger. Uh, that these mentors are people who guide you and they help you figure out you know where your lives are headed and they help create opportunities for you. And so I guess that second piece of advice is to find those mentors and ask them to help you in, in all those ways. I think that the um, last piece of advice I would give is that when I was your age, uh, there were a few times where I remember being in a room and hearing somebody tell all of us in the room something to the effect of you folks are the best and the brightest. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, you've, you you know, you're a Harvard student. <laughs> you, you've heard this. And, um, you know, many of your listeners have been in rooms where you've heard the exact same thing. And um, as I sort of reflect back, you know, I'm 50 years old now and, you know, I, I'm very privileged to have some friends who I think are truly the best and the brightest at what they do. And, you know, I've taught a lot of really talented residents. And let's say the average resident is maybe uh, 28, 30 years old. And, you know, I think that those residents are sort of the the so-called best and the brightest in their cohorts. And, you know, we've talked about college students who are, you know, for example, you know, 18 or 20 years old, you know, have heard the same thing. But But a few years ago, I had a little epiphany. And it was that if you look at the groups of people who are, let's say, there's a cohort who's 18, there's a cohort who's 30, and there's a cohort who's 50, the groups of people who are the best and the brightest are not always the same people. (laughs) You know, I think some of them are the same, but I think that people seem to move in and out of that group. Uh, I think that as you plan your career, it's better to be in that group when you're 30 or you're 50 and you definitely don't want to be in that group when you're 18 and not be in that group, you know, when you're 30. Uh, and so, um, so you know, you don't want to, quote, peak too early, in other words. Um, but so my last piece of advice is really to remember that education is about preparing you to be the best and the brightest throughout your entire life, not just when you're 18. So the specific piece of advice is to focus on developing the skills And the curiosity and the drive and the love, you know, what I call lifelong learning, uh, that's going to really be able to do that for whatever those are worth. I hope that those three um, pieces of advice can be useful someday.
0: Incredible. Thank you so much, Dr. Chang, for coming on the show.
1: Well, Simar, thank you so much for that opportunity.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. You can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all social media so that you don't miss out on any of our content.